Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Kara Banks. Today, we're joined by Dr. Monty Allen, Suzette Chomet, and Wilhelmina Wilson. Thanks so much. I appreciate you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So... I want to just start with the name of our podcast. So the name of our podcast is Critical Futures. And so I want to start off by asking, when you hear that phrase, critical futures, what does it mean to you and your work on anti-racist health policy or research on structural racism in the healthcare system? That is a really good question. When I think about anti-racist health policy, critical futures to me means thinking and planning with a critical lens, what kind of future we want to have. It makes me think about critical theory, which is really all about critiquing the status quo, considering what voices and experiences are being privileged over others, how power is operating to reproduce the status quo, i.e. inequities, and how we can rebalance power so that everyone's future is considered, and so that systems are designed to optimize health and well-being to support thriving futures for all, not just some. Importantly, we must remember that health and well-being extends beyond the healthcare system. Um, It's generated through more basic needs, such as food, land, housing, and control over one's life. To me, critical futures really means understanding and being critical of our past and our present to inform strategies for a more equitable future. And this includes, one, questioning and challenging the status quo, like I already mentioned, And to use the words of Dr. Kamara Jones, it is to ask the question, how is racism operating here? Not if, but how. Racism is an ideology and tool, as we all know, that has been used since this country was created. In fact, it is the very foundation of our country. White supremacy and capitalism co-conspired to create a country, in fact, an economic powerhouse built on slave labor the stolen and forced labor of Black and Indigenous people, and those original ideologies and acts of subordination, oppression, and psychological trauma continue to this day because it is baked into the very fabric of our society, including all of its systems. That includes the education system, the criminal justice system, media, housing and city planning, and the healthcare system. And for each of these systems, we must again ask ourselves, how is racism operating here? Once those mechanisms are identified, what have and continue to be the health impacts? Who is being helped and who is being harmed? And then third, radically rethinking our policies, programs, and systems so that they are designed to redress those harms. And for this to happen, there has to be a willingness to look inward, really to question our own assumptions, which are often deeply seated assumptions, which may even be unconscious for many to ensure that the right voices are not only at the table, but part of the planning and decision-making. I appreciate you for sharing your thoughts. I mean, I think it requires us to to look inward, to reflect, to be 
to be thinking about what we need to what we need to center and who we need to center. Yeah, as I think about that, um, what comes to my mind is that in order to create systems that support these critical features, we have to decolonize the systems that deliver services to people, um, including the healthcare system. In order to accomplish this, we must be willing to listen to those living closest to the experience. That's where the wisdom of how to accomplish the outcome we seek reside. Um, the disparities we experience today, as Amani said, are rooted in racism that dates back to the foundation of our nation. They are rooted in the decisions our founders made um, and were supported by social and economic interests. Um, they collectively decided to build the nation's economy on the backs of enslaved people and to base that enslavement exclusively on race. Looking at the social inequities that exist in our present through this historical lens, it's easy to see why we are where we are. Through Without intervention and right-setting, our systems evolved with implicit embedded biases to adversely impact justice, equity, and care for Black people and other people of color. These biases live in the blind spot of those holding power who lack the lived experiences that could inform them. This renders our power structures without referential capacity to decolonize structures and make them more equitable for the people to whom they're delivering services. Um, this might also look like authentic engagement with and learning from those most impacted by the disparities using frameworks like participatory action research um, and really kind of turning the power structure on its head and centering the voices of those least heard, prioritizing those most marginalized and engaging them to explore, inform, prototype different frameworks, models, and system structures. Um, in my mind, it also looks like increasing access to healthcare, um, and not only healthcare, but wellness services through national investments in universal healthcare and funding alternative health practices that promote culturally congruent wellness and evolving healthcare models to focus on more than just managing disease. Yeah, absolutely. And that decolonization, people talk a lot about the term, but yeah, like what does it really mean? So I appreciate you outlining some of that. Does that no, this is this is Suzette. And I really think that critical features have to include food and housing access, safety and security for all people, no matter who they are, where they live. When we talk about food specifically, um, we have to think about how the absolute levels of global food insecurity and hunger are on the rise and only being exacerbated by the pandemic climate change and conflict around the world, specifically the war in Ukraine, because many may not know that you, the Ukraine is one of the main exporters of grains all around the world. And with war going on in Ukraine, a lot of those grains have been held back from being exported. And that is going to impact our global food supply. And that's not going to stop hunger from happening if 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 we don't have the grains entering our system, people are going to go hungry all around the world. And so we have to think about our current food system as it is, as being insufficient. 
for the demands that we have currently. Um, we think about how our food is coming from all of these different places all around the world. And if they can't be shipped, trucked, or moved from one area to the other, um, we're going to have more problems arising. And it is not sustainable. Um, so if we're going to be truly anti-racist in our society, we have to create solutions that are more local, more accessible, more affordable, and informed by the communities where the solutions are and where those solutions are being implemented. So critical futures to me means that we're eliminating food apartheid that exists in our communities. And the reason why I use food apartheid is because it's the intentional creation of the inequities in our food system. It's the intentional creation of food deserts. We use the word food deserts, but we don't always think about how those came to be. It was not, in, it was not by accident. It was intentional. So critical futures means that anyone of any race can have healthy, nutrient-dense foods within one mile. Because when we talk about food deserts, it's because we say people don't have access to food within a mile, right? So bringing food closer to communities, making sure that people can have access, whether they're doing the gardening themselves or they have access to a local farmer and being able to purchase food from them directly. An anti-racist critical future means that we implemented sustainable strategies that no longer keep some communities hungry while others regularly feast. Yeah, I had no idea about the Ukraine connection. I appreciate you for connecting those dots. That's, that's so important. So important that we connect those dots. So from your perspectives, what are the most pressing issues related to anti-racist health policy or research on structural racism in the healthcare system? Mani? Sure. Um, first, I will say that, you know, understanding what racism is and how it operates is critical. Not just from an intellectual perspective, which is where many folks operate from, um, but from a shared understanding of lived experience. And this will really require first listening to understand. It will require potentially shifting one's uh, worldview, one's epistemological beliefs about what counts as data, whose data is valid, whose knowledge is valued, and whose voice is valued. Second, understanding racism as structural, again, not just from an intellectual perspective, but from lived experience, will help us understand not just that systems co-conspire, but how they co-conspire, consciously or unconsciously, to create inequities in lived experience. Like I mentioned before, who benefits from how systems currently operate and who is disadvantaged? So really understanding systems as mutually reinforcing. And this brings us back to two of our key takeaways. One, questioning our assumptions because they are deeply held, deep-seated assumptions. And second, engaging in a process of developing a shared understanding of what racism is and how it operates and a process of developing a set of shared values that will serve as a guidepost as we work toward a set of shared goals. And those shared values and shared goals cannot just be ideological, as I mentioned before. We truly must be ready for change. And so I think we kind of like 
We use these terms as buzzwords all the time. Mina, you're always talking about how language is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Language is essential. We throw these terms around almost as an intellectual exercise without really understanding how to unpack what does it actually mean when we say structural racism and truly what kind of change is it going to take in order to create the systems that are really going to operate to support thriving for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic position, et cetera. So really kind of going past those terms or at least understanding those terms so that we can really move towards real change. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, how do we, how do we move towards that change? Well, I mean, I think that there really is a need for a national strategy, honestly, for recreating our policies and systems, ensuring that every single policy, not just healthcare policy, because we all know that health resides across all sectors, just like Suzette was just talking about food and land and housing, right? It's so important. So not just healthcare policy, but ensuring that every policy operates from an anti-racist frame and really establishing a national process of oversight and enforcement. And that's often what's missing. Um, How many times have we seen, it makes me think about the Institute of Medicine's um, report, Unequal Treatment. How many of these types of reports do we have that describe just volumes of literature establishing an evidence base for what we know is happening? But then when is the change going to come? You know, we cite these reports, but when is the actual change going to come? So really thinking about that process of oversight and enforcement. And I'm not suggesting when I say national strategy that there's a one-size-fits-all approach because every system and every policy may need something different. But there can be a strategy for identifying a one-size-fits-all strategy, perhaps, um, for identifying how racism is operating and radically shifting our processes, practices, and norms to ensure an anti-racist approach. And unless we do this, any particular fix will simply be a Band-Aid. We must, 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 must have a strategy that guides us for how to approach with an anti-racist frame, the recreation of our policies and systems to support health equity. So I guess what I'm really talking about is building in an anti-racism praxis. One example that comes to mind is John Powell's targeted universalism approach, which others have referred to as proportionate universalism. These approaches are intended really to redress harms rather than simply perpetuate inequities by giving everyone the same thing. So when we think about inequities, I think what's a little bit more palatable is give everyone the same thing. We're giving everyone the same thing. But if we're not starting out on even ground, then giving everyone the same thing doesn't do anything except perpetuate those existing inequalities or inequities. Given where we are now, equal distribution of resources is not the same as an equitable distribution of resources. And this is really where I think the rubber meets the road. Are our values ideological or are we really willing to put skin in the game to really change how things are done? I think that... um understanding how racism is grounded in power and how power codifies its perspective and structures Mm -hmm. and systems and operationalizes these biases is vital. Mm. 
if we are, are sincere in our efforts to involve our systems, you know, namely our healthcare system, to be more humanitarian, just and as Amani said, equitable. Um, I think that equitable, that the difference between equal mm-hmm. and equitable has to be at the center of this conversation because in this nation, we didn't start out on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. And over generations, those disparities have gotten deeper and deeper. Um, we did a forum back in 2009 with a woman, um, Dr. V. Diane Woods, who had been looking at mental health disparities. And she put a visual up on the board and she said um, that was historical. And then one from today, and they were almost identical. And she asked us to guess what year that initial visual was from. And, you know, we went through the whole day and at the end she said, this one was from 1905. Wow. And this one is 2005. Wow. So we really haven't come very far in all of that time. Um, so those are, you know, that inequity is what we have to address through this. And so I think this is why Black women, no matter what their socioeconomic standing, um, have some of the worst maternal child health outcomes. Um, it doesn't matter if you're Dorothy from around the corner or Serena Williams. The biases that are operational in the system still put your life at risk when you're delivering a baby. And to address these racist outcomes, healthcare organizations and foundations have to be purposeful and intentional, intentional about integrating voices, um, Black voices and voices of other people of color in every stage of their planning, their delivery planning process. Um, the other thing I think is key is as the voices of Black and other people of color are sought out to influence our structures, processes, services, um, understanding the values, again, as uh, Amani shared, of the individuals, families, and communities being engaged is essential in identifying the gaps um, and like documenting the gaps in the values. As we have these conversations is also key. Um, I think we also need to be clear that it's not incumbent on the communities that are we serving to bring that knowledge to us. You know, just as we do other research, health, science research, we must also invest resources to engage communities um, around their value. Early and often. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whether directly through um, or through engaging community organizations like Healthy Black Families, where I'm the executive director. Mm-hmm. There are a plethora of tools and frameworks that support organizations to um, engage effectively in this work. Um, at Healthy Black Families, we use a tool called the Hall Tone of Values Inventory and the Erickson Family Functioning Scale um, to unpack the dynamics of relationship and interrelationship. You know, as community servants, I think it's our ethical opportunity and responsibility to invest in this level of community knowing in our equity work and to make and hold space for people, um, the people we serve to inform, influence, co-design the services that are being designed for them. Uh, nothing about me without me is the thing we should seek to realize. We feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On one of our recent podcasts, all black women again, <clears throat> and we all had our birth stories and we're talking about how 
if you know a black woman, if you have a relationship with a black woman, they have a story for you. Mm-hmm. All have a story. I appreciate you lifting that up. Suzette, this makes me think about um, Suzette and Mina. Uh, Kara, you mentioning stories makes me think about the uh, Your Stories Project at Healthy Black Families. Oh, telling, telling our, our stories. stories. Telling mm-hmm. our stories, yes. Mm-hmm. Like that. that's that wisdom that you're talking about, Mina, that, yes. that is often so absent. It's absent from research. It's absent from programming and planning. We... We want to tell our stories. Sometimes it's cathartic to tell our stories, but mm-hmm. then also depending on depending on your experience, you also want to put it away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's this there's this contradiction in a way. I think at least from this conversation we were we were having, it was this feeling of like you're willing to go there and share it, but it has to be with the right people mm-hmm. who you know will hold it True. and will question and poke holes in it. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you all are doing that because I'm, I'm sure you hold that space for women yes. to be able to share it in a way that it can be received and they don't have to hear well but 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 or could you have just right right and and healthy black families has created a series of books with these stories how oh, beautiful it's called telling our stories the stories that black women never tell and they are available on amazon um, but we do create this container so that people so that women specifically can tell their stories there isn't uh, the, the space to poke holes in stories because we're all authentically coming from our own perspectives and then share together. And these are um, six to eight week long um, storytelling circles. So you learn to build trust within these circles with people who are like you, think, think like you, talk like you. And, you know, we don't have to explain what it means to be a black woman like that at the outset doesn't have to be done because that's who's sitting in the room. So from the beginning, we know that there's some safety there. And I think that, you know, this leads to, to my next point, which is that people have to understand that each action that they take and each policy that they make can be anti-racist and that it has to be lifelong work. Mm-hmm. We cannot think that attending a workshop or reading a book is the extent of anti-racist practice, Right. It's not enough to just do that. You know, um, each interaction that you have with somebody is an opportunity, especially when it's a challenging, when it's a challenging situation. Um, So when you're feeling discomfort, you have to ask yourself some questions. How am I showing up in this interaction? What's making me uncomfortable right now? Like, why am I grabbing my purse or why do I feel sweaty or why am I feeling defensive? These are questions that we have to be able to ask ourselves when we're feeling them as they're coming up Um, and then ask ourselves, what's making me uncomfortable? Where am I more comfortable? And being able to answer that question, how is this situation benefiting me? How is it benefiting others? How is it not benefiting others? And realizing that we all show up with biases, but we don't all have power over other people. Racism is a power structure that creates a hierarchy for wealth, Mm -hmm. for education, housing, food access, and it's done intentionally and perpetuated by some. So when we do anti-racist work, we all do make errors as a result of our own learning anxiety, right? We all want to be able to get it right. 
But the truth is that you can't get everything right when you're learning how to do it. Um, But your intent matters and the context does matter also. And there's a difference between being malicious and making a mistake. So you do have to check in with yourself again. Am I coming from a place of just not knowing and I want to learn? Or am I being, you know, not cool? Am I being malicious to somebody else? And where does that come from? So, you know, before going any further, I do want to acknowledge the work of Dr. Melanie Turvalon, who is one of my teachers, and I know one of Amani's teachers as well, who coined the term cultural humility versus cultural competence. Because cultural humility implies that you want to learn from the other person who is in front of you. Cultural competence implies that somehow there's a finish line. And once you're competent, you can check that box and say, I am culturally competent, which just doesn't exist because we're constantly interacting with different people of different cultures. And I'm not just talking about race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. We all live in different cultural groups. I mean, before we started recording, some of us were talking about the weather. Some of us were talking about it's cold and it's 50 degrees. Somebody else said it's cold and almost negative four. (laughs) And so context matters, right? Culture matters. But in these workshops that we do, one of the goals is to create ways for participants to listen to one another, listen to their stories, rather than applying what we think we know about people based on their race alone. And in the several years that I've done these trainings, people generally self-select. You know, it's not the people who need the most help who are coming into these trainings. It's usually people who say, that sounds interesting. I want to go. Or they've been referred to, you know, by human resources because they've done something that was out of pocket and they have to come and they need to learn some new skills. Right. But it's not what they do in the workshops that matters the most. It's what they do after with the information that they have learned in those workshops. Um, and, and, you know, Amani said something the other day that really got my, my wheels turning because it's like when you are learning to drive, right? You get your driver's permit, but you're definitely not a good driver at 15, 16 years old. It takes practice. It takes different contexts. So whether it's raining or it's foggy or it's really bright or you're driving a stick versus an automatic, You have to be able to to change based on the circumstances and the context, right? So when you're young, you drive differently. You might overcorrect. You might, you know, brake too hard. But then when you have a little bit more experience, you know how to navigate the road a little bit differently. And with different circumstances, with different freeways, with different highways or street signs. You learn to read the situations differently. You learn how to get better as you go. And I would say that it's the same thing with any anti-racist work. You have to be in the situation as it is. You can't say, well, I did this yesterday. And so that's going to work well today. Just like you can't say, I drove this way yesterday on that road yesterday. And so it's going to work on this road today. So the main thing that I think we have to get across is that anti-racism is about everyday practices, every moment practices. And when we think about how we're showing up, we need to have this lens on and say, 
I'm willing to learn with every new context and or every new situation that comes up rather than saying, I've got this down. I took the workshop because that ain't it. Yeah. And, and when you talk about cultural humility, which is so important, it's a both and. You talked about cultural humility. Amani talked about having a national strategy, right? So people to realize that it's not a either or. That's right. But it really is that both and. That's both of those approaches. So of these issues that you've mentioned, or maybe you have a, a different story you want to talk about, I want to hear what you and your community partners are working on. Like maybe tell us a story about what's gone well or how you've navigated it when it's been hard. Um, oftentimes we come out with these partnerships and we show only what's shiny and, and successful, but we want to share with folks the range of what happens when we when we partner and collaborate. Yeah. So at Healthy Black Families, we are working, we're a grassroots public health organization. So we're working at the intersectionality of community health. So the place where environmental justice meets chronic disease conditions, meets housing, meets education, meets employment, meets mental health. It's very dynamic. Um, where state-sanctioned police violence meets death and incarceration, meets community loss, trauma, and as Suzette says, food deserts. Um, these realities culminate in disease on multiple levels. Um, on our staff, we have two women who have lost sons to intercommunal violence. Um, and as I came on to the organization, you know, we all understand that these are escalated by disinvestment in communities of color. Um, and these, as these continue, are, and they, they show up looking like, um, you know, robbery, uh, murder in communities and things like that. Um, one of the first conversations I participated in as I came on as executive director was with the mayor of the city who was looking to spend a million dollars on additional surveillance equipment for the community, for a community already in trauma. And um, I was going to say that always blows my mind. If you see the disparities in a community, you think the solution is to, to add more surveillance and add yeah. more law enforcement. And those are kind of empirical, right? That's their best thinking. Um, but there were group of community organizations there talking about, well, we've been begging for extended after-school programs, recreation for children, job training. Where are those dollars? Um, so that's, you know, on one side of it when it becomes really hard. So we're looking to bring forward voices that will influence these kind of top-down decisions. So one of the things Healthy Black Family has done to empower community members with education is to work to train them to organize, advocate, and influence policy decisions. Um, in July of this year, we did a leadership training in partnership with an organization called the Universal Self-Leadership Institute, um, developed by and on the research of a Black scholar named Dr. Zaid Abdul Kareem. Um, we enrolled 21 Black women from community in a 12-week training um, with 100% retention. We started with 21, we graduated with 21, which tells you how engaged they were. Um, and this is 100% retention of working women with children who are caregiving for elder parents and navigating the stresses of oppressive circumstances on a daily basis. So they were on their phones. Mina, let me just interject and say, so they're not hard to reach. 
right? right. Like these are the communities right. that they're commonly referred to as hard to reach, quote unquote, no. air quotes, hard to reach populations, right? They're not hard to reach. Right. You're showing that. I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off. That's okay. Well, no, I think that's important to highlight. They get framed as hard to reach because the 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 way that we've always done things doesn't reach them. And we have to ask why they're hard to reach, right? What, yeah. what are the approaches that we take that make them hard to reach? Exactly. Versus how do we bring them in? Yeah, and that hasn't evolved either. When I graduated from Georgia State in 1984, I was the only Black in a management training program with Spellman, Clark, Morehouse, right down the street and around the corner. And we were hard to reach then. So that's not an excuse, right? It's just, right. Um, so these 21 women um, have gone through this program and um, we're going to move them forward um, to a policy organizing and advocating training where they'll learn how to advocate, identify community leaders, organize, develop policy platforms, and move policies through the municipal process. From that group, we'll choose a few of them who will become Healthy Black Families Fellows, HBF Fellows, um, to lead community participatory active and research projects around the redevelopment of the Adeline Corridor, which will include affordable housing, um, there's a reparations platform they're trying to inform. And um, also we're, you know, we're suffering as many urban areas are. I think it's global. Um, a mass displacement of Black people from communities of color um, because of gentrification. So we have also worked with some of the local partners, East Bay Community Law Center um, and uh, the Akinati Foundation and San Francisco Foundation to create an affordable housing preference policy that will be, we hope will be community governed and um, influence who gets this affordable housing once it comes online. So those are the types of um, boots on the ground advocacy that we're doing at Healthy Black Families. That's great to hear. And that the, the thinking about like having a community advisory board that's going to inform the decisions is important and it's common. We're hearing that across a number of partnerships. And, and what does that look like to really give folks not just a place at the table, but power in the decision-making, which Suzette talked about a bit earlier. So you talked a little bit about that community partnership. I appreciate you for, for highlighting that. Maybe broadly, if everyone could talk about the steps that you take to partner and engage community organizations. Like, what does that look like if somebody wants to do it and do it well? Um, what are those steps look like? And if you want to, you can wrap in there, you know, what values guide that partnership. Does that? So I, I want to go back a little bit to this idea of hard to reach, because there is something behind hard to reach, which is how are you approaching me when you want to do your research? Are you coming to me when you're ready to do the research and you want to ask me some questions about my life and have me divulge to you personal things about me? Or have you invested in a relationship with me and my community prior to asking me for something? All three of us have relationships to healthy Black families in different capacities, in one form or another. So. In 2016, I became a board member. And then in 2020, I believe, I became the interim executive director. Um, but 
The biggest and most important role that I've played is being a community participant. So Healthy Black Families is an organization, but we are also part of the community. We are the community. And so we get approached by universities and other groups that want us to, you know, supply information to them. And so we are um, constantly evaluating how we want to, to share who we are and what we do with people who are approaching us. And frankly, we look at how they've developed relationships with us. So one of the things that I think is really important and that what and what we've done, because as I said, we're the community, but we also engage with the community. So we're both and um, we believe in participating in events that our community holds on their terms. So we're not just making appointments with people and saying, hey, can we talk to you about such and such? We're going to their Christmas parties. We're going to their holiday parties. We're going to baby showers. We are participating with them on their own terms first, before asking them for anything. Um, people in the community will recognize my face or Mina's face or Amani's face by um, both face and name, right? They recognize us. And therefore, if I ever go to them and ask them if they wanna participate in something, they're more likely to do it because they already know me and I already know them. I know some of the struggles that they have. I already know what's going on with them at home. They know this. I'm not just coming in dry with a request. Um, and so I think people are more likely to respond favorably when they feel like you've invested in them early on. Um, building community relationships is a big part of the work that we do, and it's integral to what we do. So it is not, it's not a, a nice to have, it's a need to have. And so I think that as researchers, you must remember that a big part of your work is to build relationships and trust, not use communities in a transactional way. And that can happen if you're not intentional about how you approach them. So it may not be something that you consciously think about. And that's why you must be intentional when you're writing your programs, when you're writing your grants about approaching communities early and often, as I said, building those relationships with them and not just because you want to get some data from them, but because you really care about the outcomes for them and for your project. Yeah, I've heard some people talk about moving at the speed of trust. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's so important. Right. And then in, in academia, we can sometimes, and not just academia, but formal, sometimes formal institutions and structures will want to like rush and, and microwave the relationship. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You have, mm -hmm. it has to be consistent and sustained over time. But then sometimes maybe even community partners will, will want what is being brought to the table. And so they'll engage. But then we also know things can move really slow. So it's almost like a hurry up, microwave the relationship, but then hurry up and wait because we got to wait for funding or we got to wait for the grants office to figure out how to get you paid or like it's this and it's, it begins to feel transactional. And, and, and like you said, are you coming to only when you need something? It's extractive. So one of the experiences I had within Marin City, they were, they had done a program, a pilot program with a group of 20 women um, who were mothers in subsidized housing. And the program had been really successful. 
And so they were looking to do outreach and um, having trouble finding another cohort of women to follow up the program. And they were hiring someone from outside the community to come in and do outreach. I'm sitting at the table. And when I'm in this community, again, as a means of relationship, I act like an in-law at a family reunion because this is not my community. I'm a visitor, (laughs) right? And I understand that. Um, So I'm listening to them and I just raised my hand and I said, have you thought about leveraging your graduates in your outreach effort? And everyone said, what did you say? I said, have you thought about leveraging your graduates in your outreach effort? So they were seen, they had perceived the graduates as participants but they didn't value them enough to leverage them in work itself, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, one of our data collection folks who's helping us with our action research um, got a large MacArthur Foundation grant to do some work in policing. And she said, Mina, we were able to pay our community action researchers like consultants. Mm-hmm. because we are leveraging their lived experiences. They're subject matter experts of their life. So they paid them consulting level wages. And I was like, do oh you know what that did to the agency of these folks in community who are living on the margins to make $125 an hour to bring mm-hmm. their knowledge to the table? That's where I think we need value. Community. And it's that valuable. It is worth every penny. It really is. Absolutely. Their lived experience is valuable. So how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I mean by turning this whole thing upside down on its head mm-hmm. so that community voices are centered, not only centered, but valued as experts. Yeah. I mean, we have to get away from the idea that thinking that giving somebody a $20 gift card makes it worth their time. When we're writing these budgets, we need to be thinking a lot bigger because if you think about people's time as one piece, but also their expertise, their level of information, and what they're going to yield for us as researchers, how it's going to expand the body of research. You can't throw $20 at somebody. You can't throw $20 at me and make it feel worth it for me to tell you the truth about my experience. I'm not going to tell you everything about myself for $20. And so you have to understand how when you limit how much you're willing to give somebody participating, also know they're going to limit how much they give you. And so when you talk about hard to reach, you got to think about how how you're approaching people. And if you're throwing $20 at them, know that you're going to get limited data. Because nobody feels valued when you do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And what are you investing? Right. The other thing that was an outcome of that research project is many of those people were able to take that research and parlay it into careers that have advanced their ability to have agency in the world. So they've gotten hired as equity managers or you know diversity consultants or whatever. So as we look at engaging community, it's not so much as that said throwing the twenty dollar gift card. How do we invest in them so that at the end of the project, they're in a better position than when we met them in relationship? I just had a thought that I hadn't thought about it quite this way, 
that when people, when we talk about populations being hard to reach, it's just us not taking accountability, which we've said, but I don't, I don't know that I've heard it said quite that way of like not taking accountability that that population, it, we're not in relationship enough for them to give us the time of day. Mm-hmm. Let's just call it what it is. Well, it's victim blaming. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, when we talk about how we approach people and we are saying, well, they're the ones who are hard to reach. They're the ones who live in food deserts. They're the ones who have violent behaviors. They're the ones. Then we don't take accountability for our own role in that, right? So we need to shift how we talk about all of this. When we talk about health disparities, we're again putting it on other people. Well, their health isn't good because, or they're more, you know, they have higher obesity rates or higher hypertension rates. Well, why though? Let's let's go further upstream. Yeah, we often don't because you said, you know, these health disparities, because usually we stop at these are the health right. disparities. These are right. the numbers. Right. Which which really dehumanize. It really mm-hmm. does. It really does. As if there is something inherently wrong with these groups of mm-hmm. people that for the last 50, 60, 70, 100 years have had such poor health outcomes. Well, why? Right. And that trust is so important. I remember um, when I was collecting data for one of my projects, the African-American Women's Heart and Health Study, and I was out there collecting data with, you know, all of my, um, with all of my, well, collecting data and recruiting with, you know, with the rest of my staff. And I remember approaching a Black woman once and telling her about the the study and you know we were going to be drawing blood so not only are we asking you to tell us about your whole lives Suzette but I also want your blood (laughs) and so this woman said to me just because you look like that so me as a black woman right she said you know why do you need my blood I'm not giving you my blood just because you look like that doesn't mean I'm going to give it to you because you still represent the university Mm -hmm. right so when it comes down to it regardless of what we look like it takes time to to be out in the community to build trust, not just to build trust, to earn to earn that trust and keep um, earn and, and keep and keep. Yes, thank you. And I think I was surprised as a black woman to get that kind of response from another black woman. But I had to think about what I represented, and I also had to think about this was a community that I had not at the time been investing in. Right, and so that was a a great lesson for me. Um, and it really makes you think about just Suzette, the point you the point you brought up is is in Mina, like investing, but also how do you invest? Mm-hmm. That issue of retention that you brought up. Yeah. And understanding that what you do speak so loud, people are not going to hear what you say. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you set an intention, for instance, we were brought into this funding around affordable housing. And written into the grant in June when the study started in January. The previous year, right? So we're at the tape. No, J- June, pre-fiscal year, but January, you know, 2022. And we're written in in June. But the whole conversation is being formulated and structured from January to June. So why are we not at the table? Mm-hmm. And then when we show up to the table, why are the Black people the only people at this table who are not funded to be here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? And why is that? And why did no one else see that pattern? And so the the assumption was, oh, well, we're having the preliminary financial conversations 
and you guys are in community engagement. Did anybody ask me? I mean, you guys don't know that I have a degree in accounting and finance, but that's because you didn't ask. You just assumed that I was over there with the Black community and engaging people, but I had nothing to bring to the financial conversation. That's a problem. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And it frustrates me, yeah, that that it took you or someone, a person of color, to say that. Yeah, and then we had to go back to the city and go, okay, we're not going to be here for free. Right. So go to the mayor and ask him where the money is that's going to pay us to be at this table from now to June. But then how long does it take to then get the funding? So, yes, you can raise the issue six months into the project, right? Then you'd say, hey, look, we need to have funding for us to participate in this part of the discussion. And they say, oh, okay, let's go back to whoever's making decisions about the budget and see what we can do. And then there's another delay, right? But there, there's an expectation that the work is still going to be done, that we're still going to show up. And, and lend our voices to this, but we're not given the adequate funds, time, human resources to do the work. We're just told, you know, just like so many diversity and inclusion people who, you know, th- these d- diversity and inclusion initiatives are like, oh, the Black person can do it, but they don't provide additional funding for that position. And in that action, they're telling us they don't value us. Right. Exactly. Although what's coming out of their mouth is saying, oh, you're a value. Right. The contradiction. Yeah. So in your work, what do you hope to change, shift, or radically reimagine regarding anti-racist policy or research on structural racism in healthcare? Is that? So in public health and medicine, we learn about and use the term social determinants of health to guide our work, Right. We use the data to look at inequities and then develop research and programs that, quote unquote, address the inequities. But it's time that we really go upstream, as I said earlier, and look at how these determinants came to be. They didn't happen by accident. So we need to be asking, how did we get here? What were the policies that were created? How did those policies create harm that resulted in these social determinants? How are they being perpetuated and how do they persist? Who wins when we have these um, systems set up this way? And then who loses? And if we don't ask these questions up front, we're just putting Band-Aids on wounds that are hemorrhaging and we see it every day. So if we don't look directly at how land is stolen, for example, and hoarded by powerful people or sunk underwater, to eliminate communities, which we know happens, then how can we keep it from happening again in the future? It may not be known to some, but in 1922, 100 years ago, 14% of the land owned in the United States was Black-owned. Today, 100 years later, it's 1%. Mm. Mm. How did we go from 14% of land owned by Black people in 1922 to now being 1%? Those are policy issues. There, That's redlining. That's the downstream effect of redlining. We talk about redlining. This is another one of those lang- language things, right? We talk about redlining as if it's in the past. But we don't talk about the downstream effects of redlining. We don't talk about the disinvestment from communities that happened as a result. Or that now you can go into a community to get a housing appraisal 
And if you're a black person living in that house, right, your appraisal will come in three hundred, you know, a hundred thousand dollars less than your white neighbor. Five hundred thousand. I mean, there's a there's a there's a case in Marin City right now. Somebody's appraisal came in a half a million dollars lower. That's right. When they had all their black pictures up in their house, but then when they took them down and replaced them with white pictures, the appraisal came and had their neighbor come and right. sit there. Right. And go through right. the appraisal. People don't think that that's real happening today, but it is real and happening today. Right. So, again, an anti-racist framework has to include everyday practices. It is not enough to say that you're an anti-racist and you've read the two or three books. Once you put mm-hmm. the book down, you got to do the practice every single day. So these are things that we cannot deny. And if we don't look upstream, we're going to continue to perpetuate harm. And we must look upstream for how racism was was is foundational to how this country was founded and continues to create this power structure and then shift and change. And I'm not necessarily talking about dismantling what's been done because it's badly broken and was built to be broken. We got to create something new and just start from the ground up and stop trying to break down the systems that are, they want to keep it that way. So, you know, build something new. That's my, that's my perspective. And, you know, Suzette, I think that the points that you're making are so very important because still today, when we hear the word racism, what often comes to people's minds the is that person, well, that, that, that person X did something yeah. to person Y, right? That it's all happening at the individual level, that there are some bad right. apples and it undermines understanding of what structural racism truly is, how it really operates, as I mentioned before. And I know I kind of sound like a broken record, but I think you talking about Racism is foundational, right? And going back to some of those original sins that we are still feeling the effects of today, then we really cannot ignore how racism is truly baked into every aspect of our society, all Mm -hmm. systems. And so, in thinking about what we want to change, shift, or reimagine, um, I think one critical area is really raising awareness of the many facets of racism. It's not just that uh, someone crossed the street when you were walking down the street, mm-hmm. right? It's so much more than that. It's not that when you started to get into the elevator, the other person got mm-hmm. out of the elevator. It's not just being called articulate. I'm oh, not yeah. even going to go there. Oh. <laughs> um, it's It's not just those things, right? It's really understanding the many facets of racism, how it operates at and across multiple levels, and how it impacts everything from systems, which we've already been talking about, all the way down to biology. And I really hope that raising this awareness motivates a sustained interest and sustained efforts towards anti-racist approaches to population health and health inequities. You know, ultimately, I think we should be doing racism or anti-racism impact assessments for every single policy decision and every single policy that's being proposed perhaps should have, you know, at at academic institutions, it's common um, nowadays 
during the hiring process to ask applicants to submit a DEI statement, a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. Well, when policies are being proposed, maybe we need to understand what the um, potential unintended consequences are going to be for the most marginalized populations. Um, What is the potential racist or anti-racist impact for these policy decisions? Um, It makes me think about like health and all policies, um, about that approach. So what about an anti-racism in all policies approach? Because again, as we know, this is not just about the healthcare system, it's about all of our Mm -hmm. systems um, and how they operate and co-conspire. And then going back to the issue of language, Suzette, you were just talking about the social determinants of health and this need to go upstream. And so just like when we think about racism, how sometimes our brains go to what's happening between individual people and not really thinking about structures, when we um, think about the social determinants of health or hear that term, that also has become a buzzword, a buzz term, a buzz phrase. And it makes me think about, you know, for the past 10 years or so, for example, I've been sitting on study section at the National Institutes of Health reviewing grant applications. And I get so excited when I see a title that says anything about the social determinants of health. And then I read the grants to be disappointed to see that the social determinants of health and the grant is like sex and smoking, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not the social determinants of health. Wait, what, what, huh? I'm, I'm just, <laughs> the, this is broadly how, and I'm just giving this as one example. I'm talking about 10 years of grants that I've been reviewing where the social determinants of health tend to be more downstream proximal behavioral issues without thinking about what are the structures that created these behaviors in Mm -hmm. the first place, right? Um, Or that created the disparities that we're thinking about or the inequities that we're thinking about in the first place. It makes me think about Daniel Dawes' work on the political determinants of health because we, when the collective, we really think about what are the social determinants of health. It's not behavior. It's not sex. Mm -hmm. It's what Tom Glass has referred to as risk regulators. Those social and political exposures and experiences, environmental, socio-environmental and political exposures and experiences that regulate our exposure to more downstream risks and or resources, right? Um, Who gets to live in certain kinds of communities and certain kinds of houses? Um, You know, there are all kinds of downstream effects that we can think about or what Bruce Link and Joe Phelan call the fundamental, fundamental causes those upstream root causes that, again, determine the resources or risk factors that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis, Mm -hmm. right? Those are the grants that are not necessarily getting funded. Uh, And I was actually going to ask, what do funders need to do, right? How can funders support this work being done in the ways that you believe it should be done? So I wanted to just throw that in there because you were starting down that road. Well, yeah. And that's why I'm saying like language is important. It's not enough to just say the social determinants of health. Well, who says? Right. Who says that's a social determinant of health? Right. Like when we what are we trying to do when we're trying? What are we trying to do when we bring in a whole other category of exposures, of risks, of circumstances that may convey or may reflect 
factors associated with the inequities that we're looking at today. It's not enough to look at at smoking and sex. And, and I'm harping on that as an example, but you would be surprised how common it is to see those things. So we throw these terms around, racism, structural racism, institutional racism, social determinants of health in their words. But we have to peel back that onion. We have to unpack what these really mean. And so I guess what I'm saying is really raising a deep awareness of not just what these words are and what these terms are, but the experiences that they actually convey mm-hmm. so that so that applicants and funders, and honestly, it's funders are the ones who write the calls. True. So what are you looking for and what are you accepting mm-hmm. from someone who says, I'm you know, looking at the social determinants of health? So I do think that there's a role for funders to play. I think that there is an obligation that researchers um, and scholars have to play in raising awareness and community and everybody else in raising awareness about these factors and about how inadequate it is to throw around these buzzwords and not really get at the root of the problem, because that's not going to move us anywhere. It's really not. And what's interesting is in what you're saying, it makes me think funders write the calls, but then they also have to write the rubrics or hold the reviewers accountable. So you don't get off just because you put the words in the call. What are you holding your reviewers accountable to? And the reviewers need to have a conversation around, all right, when we hear social determinants of health, are we just going to take that on its face? What do we mean? And the funders really need to back that up and say what Mm -hmm. they mean. Absolutely. Reviewers will do their interpretation. Yeah. So in my view, funders have to support more Black-led organizations. I mentioned 1% of land being owned by Black folks in this country. There's another 1%, which is that philanthropic organizations give 1% of their funding to Black-led organizations. That means 99% of the funds are going to other people. And if you really want to impact how the work can be done, you've got to fund it. So the disparity in funding is another clear example of how our institutions are either consciously or unconsciously biased and racist. So funders, look at your portfolios. Who are you funding? What organizations are you giving to? How are you making decisions about which organizations and research that you fund? Take a look at your portfolios. How diverse are your program officers? What are your goals for hiring and making your teams more diverse? And of course, how are their voices being included? So when we talk about inclusion, it means how are people sitting at different tables at all levels of the organization from the very top to the very bottom? And how are you making sure that those voices are part of the discussion and included in the discussion? So that's my main thing for funders. Look at your portfolios first. Who are you funding? And then make adjustments from there. It's again, going upstream instead of just looking at the results. How are you making decisions about how you're funding? Yeah, that's so important. Hmm. Uh, Mina, let's circle back. What do you hope to shift or change or radically imagine in your work? And how do you see community involved in this process? Um, so I see a kind of, it's very dynamic, but for descriptions purposes, I would just say vertical integration of this. We talk about these 
large systems that we have to dismantle, recreate, whatever. Um, and that seems, you know, sometimes overwhelming. And so I think about how do we get to the, you know, having an accounting background, the grand, most granular piece of that to analyze it. And it's like, that's you and me. That's the people who are walking in these systems and being in these systems. And I think what Suzette brought up about this deep level of listening and capacity to understand how their actions impact equity, justice, inclusion is essential. Um, I can walk in, out of an elevator because I don't like someone in the elevator. That means I'm prejudiced or I have bias. But I don't sit in positions of power where I can impact the downstream impact on large communities of people. And so being able to um, not only listen to the people who are coming to you, um, you know, we're talking about foundations now and funding and, and appealing for funding, having the capacity to listen to how you're reacting to your holding of mm. power and how you're distributing mm -hmm. that power and question at a deep level why you're doing that. Um, and, and, and what your goals are to those ends are something that we hope to impact. Um, so we're really looking at, um, you know, revealing the truth of what's going on at a community-based level, the wisdom that lives in the community that stands to inform on um, these decisions and factors and inviting people um, to embrace that wisdom so that we can move forward for our collective good. Mm -hmm. And I would, to just to kind of piggyback on that, Mina, and bridge that with the previous conversation that we were having about funding, it brings to mind an, a recent article that I read um, in Health Affairs called Building Community Power to Dismantle Policy-Based Structural Inequity in Population Health. Um, this is... Yeah, I want to read that. I need to put it on my to-do list. Absolutely. Everyone should read it. Um, it is a great um, it is a great piece. And it was written. Um, one of the authors is from um, a California, a, a big California foundation, the California Endowment, Tony Iten, who used to be um, head of the Alameda County Department of Health. But I raise this because this is someone coming from a funding organization and saying that we actually have to change the way we fund projects, who we fund, et cetera. And they're really presenting a framework of funding community empowerment, right? And it really does speak to everything we've been talking about on this uh, podcast today, which is really about centering community voice, recognizing, valuing community expertise and empowering, working with communities to, um, to empower action. Right at the community level, and and in this article, they they show um, they give examples of how their 14 cities project has been tremendously successful. You know, but it took time; it took a lot of trust and um, building. But this, I think, is a very um, probably not the business as usual model for for uh, for foundations for, um, and I'm not just going to say foundations, just for. Funders of health research. Mm -hmm. hmm. 
So to round out our conversation, I want to ask each of you, what advice do you have for people who are just entering this work? Suzette? I start with talking to communities first. Um, Ask them what's most important to them and then listen and use what they've provided to you to inform how you develop your research project. Don't go in with a research project already defined and figured out and then tell them what you're going to do. That's, that's, a, um, that's a recipe for disaster because you're not really going to get authentic responses um, in your research if you tell people what you're going to do to them or with them. Um, you know, wisdom lives closer to the lived experience. So make sure that communities' voices are centered in the process. Um, allow them to ideate, design, prototype, and inform the measures around your work. Um, also challenge your own assumptions. When you think that a particular group is going to react in a particular way, uh, stop yourself and then ask some questions of them. Um, Develop some shared values and, um, you know, make sure that you're bridging the gaps. And that's something that we do a lot or, or something that I do a lot in my own community engagement work and community investment work, because this is about investing in the people that we're working with, not just engaging them in conversation, but actually investing in better outcomes for them, because we want to make sure that whatever research we do is going to improve the outcomes for the people that we work with. Um, And definitely redefine how you're looking at community engagement. Remember, it's not just a series of conversations. It's about how they're going to influence your work and the work going forward. Um, And making sure that they're involved early and often, as I've said a couple of times, and when I say early, it's before you're Research study is all mapped out often means that they are at the decision making tables, that you are ensuring that they are um, actively participating. This is not a, a one size fits all, nor is it a one shot deal. So making sure that you've got different voices from the community, because we know that not one person can speak for a whole community. We got to get multiple voices at the table. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it's so important to not just be formative. Right. Yeah. Mina? Well, I'm a translational researcher. Mm -hmm. I like to take pedagogy and apply it in community and see if it is valid and feedback to the pedagogy what my findings are. And so I work with tools that create that. Um, I mentioned, um, and there are a plethora of them, but we have used the Hall Tone of Values Inventory to help surface values of communities to map the value gaps um, and to really, uh, you know, do a pathway forward for training for people who need to bridge those gaps to authentically engage communities. When you're talking about evaluating harm and um, we use something called the Erickson's Family Functioning Scale to look at um, multiple ways that families function and um, where the barriers are and what harm that has created. We're actually using that now to estimate what um, the cost of reparations might be for the city of Berkeley. So um, those types of tangible tools, I think, are really important to give this work 
feet to walk in the world and get it out of the ideology kind of framework. And um, so that's what I think funders can also invest in um, as we go to really make this work tangible and convenient. Yeah. And you're making me think about how, I mean, one of the, I, I wasn't, I'm not going to answer the question fully, but in <laughs> me think about connecting what you're saying. One of the advice that I would give to folks is to stay up to date about what, well, vision about what's possible, but stay up to date about what's being put on the table in other places. So your comment about um, calculating reparations Right. That's happening in Boston. It's happening in a few different spaces. Mm-hmm. It's happening yes. in places that, that haven't made the mainstream news yet. And literally five years ago, we wouldn't be having open mainstream conversations about reparations the same way we are today. And so my advice is to stay up on what's what's on the tables because you don't have to fight those same fights. Mm-hmm. Like you can just start the conversation with reparations. You don't have to to talk around it. Right. Depending on the spaces that you're in. Um, I, what I find super exciting talking to people who do this work is like, all right, what are we each, what are we each working on in our spheres of influence and how can we leverage what each other are doing to continue to push for progress that when you're working with people who really care about dismantling racism and anti-racism, it's not about ego. It's about there, there's enough work for all of us. Like, let's get this done. And can I say something really quickly about reparations? It's another one of these words. That elicits, yep. you know, all kinds of feelings from people. Really, yes. reparations is about repairing harm. We know that Period. there's been harm that has been, uh, that has impacted people's lives for hundreds of years. How are we going to repair that harm? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's yes. specifically the language of the city is putting forward to that. Yes. They're moving us away from reparations and talking about repairing harm. Mm-hmm. And and long as long as we understand what the assignment is, right? That's that right. There was harm and we That's need to right. repair. So you, we can call it what we need to call it, right? Yeah. But I do think there's a way, you're right, there are words that get that become like right. buzzwords and then 40 acres and a mule, money, like, no, repair, repair harm. harm. So thank you. Take us home, Amani. Well, you know, I'm thinking back to I'm thinking back to when I was a postdoctoral scholar. Um, so I joined the board of Berkeley Black Infant Health many, many moons ago, um, which ended up becoming or morphing into healthy black families, um, not to collect data, but to just listen and understand and use my skill set to support their initiatives. Um, this really required an investment of time and of truly seeing my community colleagues, community-based colleagues as partners. I, in that space, I was not the expert. We were all experts in our own arenas coming together to co-develop strategies. And this was really an exercise of trust building on both sides and also learning to work as partners. Like Kira, you were saying before, you know, fast, slow, hurry up to slow down, like all of those dynamics come into play. Like I said, I was just a postdoc at the time and I was discouraged by some of my academic mentors from doing this work because it was not paper generating work. Right. Mm -hmm. And in papers, that is the currency of academia. It was not paper generating work. 
But honestly, it has been some of my most rewarding work and has enabled me to maintain relationships with community partners so that we are now positioned to do work focused on shared values and goals. And as much as I appreciate publishing in scientific journals, that is not the only form of knowledge dissemination. So I think we really have to think more broadly about how information is generated and how it's disseminated and how to have the greatest impact on the ground. So I say that to say, so again, at the time I was a postdoc, I had just graduated um, from graduate school. And so my my one piece of it or one of my pieces of advice for those just entering the work is stay true to who you are. Stay true to your passions. Know why you are doing what you're doing. Right. Don't get off track because um, and I'm an academic, but I'll say it like don't get off track because the academy says you have to publish X number of papers a year. or You're not going to get promoted because if I can't have the impact on the communities that I aim to serve, then it's not worth it, right? And there is a way to do both. So stay true to what, um, to who you are and to the kind of work and the kind of impact you want to have. Like I said, I was discouraged from doing this kind of work because it takes time to invest and build relationships with community partners. That does take time, but it has paid off in volumes, not necessarily in the number of publications, but in the true relationships that are being, that are being built. And what I'll say is that um, as the board's interest, Berkeley Black Infant Health, as the board's interest evolved to include the Black family, and given the lack of focus on the health and well-being of the Black family as a unit in the city of Berkeley, the director of the board decided to start a new nonprofit. So we co-wrote a grant, um, the the then director at the time and myself, we co-wrote a grant that was funded that provided the initial seed funding to support the process of developing a 501c3, which became Healthy Black Families. So the legal fees, the strategic planning retreats to co-develop our values, our vision, our mission, shorter and longer term goals, objectives, strategies, projects, and really building a team to support the initial work. And now we're at the point where we can partner on projects and co-lead projects. And that includes things like identifying funders, planning and implementing projects, data collection analysis, and yes, dissemination of results. And so I just give that as a, you know, I don't have a paper that talks about any of this, but all of this development, and I'm looking at Suzette, I'm looking at Mina. There are so many people who have been involved in the creation of this amazing nonprofit. And it has, you know, there are people who were already working at community-based organizations, you know, people like me in academia, um, lawyers and people with varying expertise that all came together to invest in the vision of healthy Black families. And so I guess what I'm saying, again, to to be true to who you are, and I can just say for myself that if I was sitting in my office um, just writing papers, then, you know, I just don't think that that is what I would want the legacy of my contributions to this work to be. Um, I have learned so much from Suzette, from Mina, from other members of the board, from Dr. Vicki, who was the founder, Vicki Alexander, the former health officer for the city of Berkeley, who was the founder of Healthy Black Families, so much in partnership with others, so much more than I could have ever even dreamed about doing on my own. And so staying true to who you are um, and really 
focusing on the impact you want to have and recognizing that you cannot do that alone. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's so it's, uh, it's beautiful to hear your reflection and like the origin story to bring it full circle on the connection here that we have on the podcast. So I want to thank you all for for sharing, for sharing your wisdom and your experiences. Um, it matters. And we're hoping that the podcast will be a, a, a innovative way to disseminate this information. Like you said, there's not a paper on this. And that's what often happens. Like we get to a point in our lives or wherever where we're about the work. We don't always have time to say, let me write this paper for this, you know, system of academia or whatever. We're like, okay, can we do this work? And so our hope is that people will learn from the stories that you told today. I know I have. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kira. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.